Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. I've preached a dozen, over a dozen Palm Sunday messages on uh, the actual uh, different gospel passages of Jesus and his entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, but I've never actually preached the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled on that day, and that's where uh, God led me this year, the prophet Zechariah's promise of a coming king. And what we find is a surprising vision of power, authority, and strength of the king that we call Lord. We call Zechariah's fulfillment the triumphal entry, but if this is triumph, then maybe we've misunderstood the notion of triumph. Recently, one of those uh, social media memories popped up in my feed, but it was a memory I wish I could forget because it was... Uh, one of our most memorable parent fails. Um, it was my son's Charlie's birthday, and all he wanted for his birthday was for Spider-Man to attend the party. For weeks and weeks, he begged for me to get in touch with Spider-Man to see if he can come to his party. Pretty difficult task. And so where this ended was me in a cheap costume I bought off Amazon. So we're at the party, and um, it's time for the cake, so I slip off into the other room and quickly change while Abby starts getting all the kids excited. Today we have a special guest who's come a long way to be here just for Charlie and his birthday. You're never going to believe who's here, kids, the one and only Spider-Man. The parents are doing a drum roll and the kids are screaming with excitement. The anticipation could not have been higher. Then a short, slightly out of shape man wearing spandex that accentuates every worst part of him, walks into the room. I cannot express the level of disappointment. (laughs) I had this mask on that kept me from breathing and seeing. So I'm stumbling around the room trying not to drop the birthday cake. The kids screaming turns into laughter. And my son yells, That's not Spider-Man, that's Robert. (laughs) Apparently too embarrassed to even refer to me as his dad. (laughs) The, The triumphal entry that we celebrate this Palm Sunday is more akin to my entry into that party than something triumphant. But that's exactly what 
Zechariah promised. A coming king who is not conquering but lowly, whose majesty is his meekness. And that's how I want to structure my thoughts this morning. The majesty of the coming king and the meekness of the coming king. Let's start with the promise of his majesty. Verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Let's position ourselves in Zechariah's context in order to understand the significance of the words that I just read. Zechariah prophesied at the end of Old Testament Israel's story. At the height of the story, King David is ruling over Israel in the land that was promised to them. After years of enslavement, um, followed by years of sojourning in the desert, Israel is a triumphant nation at rest from all her enemies with their beloved King David on the throne. And it's at that high point of the story that God promises an even greater high point that is to come. That from the line of David will come a greater king, and his kingdom will bring peace forevermore. Basically, this coming king would restore the world back to the way it should be. Lofty expectations, no doubt. And so it's not an overstatement to say that Israel's story is just really one long history of waiting for this messianic king to come. And they go through a lot as they wait. Many times it would seem that the promise is lost. They become a nation divided. They suffer through corrupt king after corrupt king after corrupt king. Eventually they are conquered by other nations. They find themselves in exile under the reign of foreign and oppressive kings. But at this point in the story, they have been freed from their exile, allowed to return to their land, and rebuild their temple. And there would have been this palpable excitement, an expectation that the messianic moment is finally drawing near. Could they be rebuilding the temple in preparation for their promised king to take his seat, conquer their enemies, and reign forevermore. That's where Zechariah comes in. His book of prophecy is certainly a strange one to read. If you read it, it's filled with many odd dreams about the kingdom that is to come, but it all culminates in our prophecy this morning. Now, with that context in mind, let me read those first few words again. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming To you, righteous and having salvation is he. Rejoice, your king is coming. And he comes in righteousness and salvation. And when he comes, it says here, he gives us this picture of the king and his kingdom and what it will do on earth. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. We're not going to be at war anymore. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. His rule shall be over all the earth, and there will be peace. This is the majestic promise for which countless generations have pined. And then, nothing. As if they haven't waited long enough 
the rejoicing that Zechariah promises once again seemingly goes unanswered. Until one day, roughly 500 years since Zechariah promises this, the king is indeed coming. An angel of the Lord appears to a virgin with the news that the promise has not been forgotten. You will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and then listen to these words in light of Zechariah's promise. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then this Jesus, who had this unbelievable promise given to his birth, did not back down from that promise. Repeatedly during his ministry, he would declare the kingdom of God is here, is at hand. Repent, follow me. And people would address him with the language reserved only for this messianic king. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then in one pitiful moment, Jesus says, it's time to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of God, the capital. The king is on his way to the capital of the kingdom to take his seat upon the everlasting throne and usher in his everlasting reign. That's the background behind the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday. The culmination of centuries of centuries of expectations. The king entering into Jerusalem for his great coronation. When it's described... It says, as he was drawing near, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice, praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Meaning, they'd already witnessed this man demonstrate his power and authority. He is the king that can pull this off. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Another gospel tells it like this. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So crowds are swarming to him. They have palm branches, which was their patriotic national symbol. They're waving them. They're laying them on the road before him. They were even spreading their cloaks on the road as a sign of their submission to his kingship. They are shouting at the top of their lungs that messianic creed, Hosanna, which means God save us. Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And what's so amazing is that Jesus, who up until this point has been very shy regarding his fame and praise, doesn't back down from the majesty of this moment. Jesus, for the first time, starts owning who he is and what he came to do. The Pharisees tried to stop and tell them to be quiet. His response leaves no doubt how Jesus viewed himself. They say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, as if to say, how can you allow this? Don't you realize they're worshiping you? They're calling you the messianic king? Rebuke them and tell them to stop. And Jesus actually responds by talking a little trash for the first time. I tell you, if they were silent, these very rocks would cry out. Is that not awesome from Jesus? I will be praised. I will be recognized. If I were to silence the crowd, these rocks would rise up and declare me king. But one way or another, I will be praised. 
And yet for those who are familiar with the story, you know there is also something strange about the majesty of this moment. If you were unfamiliar with the scene, I wonder what you would picture here. Perhaps a warrior riding in town on a war horse or even a chariot, perhaps a king riding upon a throne on the shoulders of his servants as was custom. Well, what transpires is the opposite. What transpires is what Zechariah predicted. Not the coming of a majestic king, but the coming of a meek king. Let's turn to the second half of his prophecy and see the meekness of the coming king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble, mounted on a donkey, and the colt, the foal of a donkey. A donkey. Really, a donkey. There's a reason why the beloved British author Alan Milne chose a donkey for his Sad and depressive character, Eeyore. Such is the nature of donkeys. Donkeys have always been known as the mildest and lowliest of animals. Israel, as you heard on our New Testament reading, referred to them as a beast of burden because they basically existed to carry stuff people didn't want to carry. And this lowly steed is what Zechariah promises will carry the king into victory, which is exactly what took place. Every count... The triumphal entry notes that Jesus rides upon a donkey, and two of them flat out say, this took place to fulfill what Zechariah promised. What are we to make of this? Well, I suppose you could say that this promised majestic king is not that majestic at all. That centuries of feverish expectation have been met with colossal disappointment. Or, perhaps we need to reimagine our view of majesty. What if his meekness is his majesty? What if a gentle king, a lowly king, a merciful king, is what makes for a majestic king? This is the message of Holy Week that is now upon us. He has not come to Jerusalem to slay his enemies, but to die at the hands of his enemies. He's not marching in to take his seat upon a throne, but to be nailed to a cross. And so his entrance reflects the intentions of his visit. Indeed, he comes to answer the cry, Hosanna, God save us. It's just not the answer they were expecting. Zechariah says, righteous and having salvation is he. To understand Jesus the King, you have to ask this crucial question. Salvation from what? What enemy has he come to conquer? They had nationalistic expectations in mind. Save us from Rome, our great cruel oppressor. And Jesus will be crucified by Rome. What gives? Jesus has a much greater salvation in mind. The king of kings has come to town to conquer the enemy of enemies. He has come to battle the root evil behind every form of evil. The kingdom of Satan, sin, and death. 
whose cruel oppression has spread throughout all this fallen world, including our own hearts and lives, and God has had enough of this evil reign. So the Son of God, the King of the kingdom of heaven, has mounted his donkey and is heading to Calvary for his great coronation, where his agony is destined to be his glory. They dress him in a royal robe, but of mockery, and laugh at him rather than praise him. They crown him, yes, but with the crown of thorns. And as he breathes his last, he did so with the sarcastic sign nailed to the cross above him, this is your Jesus, King of Israel. But here is the heavenly irony. It was all a spectacle, mocking this man's outlandish claims of kingship, yet these were, in fact, his most kingly acts. His humiliation is his exaltation. His suffering is his supremacy. Indeed, his meekness is his majesty. Why? Because his glory is his grace. In the suffering of the king, his kingdom has received its unfailing victory. By his wounds, we are healed. By his death, we live. By his defeat, we are saved. Saved from our truest enemy, the evil oppression of sin and death. It's not the king we expected or perhaps even wanted, but it is the king every single one of us needs. Now, Palm Sunday application. Bow down to your king. The call of Palm Sunday is to bow the knee to King Jesus, to honor him, As king, to glorify him as king, to praise him as king with all of your heart, your affections, your mind, your words, your actions, your gifts, your talents, your resources, your money, all of it in submission to King Jesus. Those are some pretty abrasive words for us to hear these days. We don't like to talk about surrender and submission to authority. We are very skeptical of authority and power, and quite frankly, we have reason to be. When you study history, you will find that every earthly power, particularly absolute earthly power, like Jesus is, asked, is, is demanding here, inevitably devolves into abuse and oppression. Submission to authority never works out well for the ones submitting. And so where we find ourselves in this cultural moment as a reactionary time that is trying to rid ourselves of the whole concept of authority. We live in an age described by philosopher Charles Taylor as determined by the ethics of authenticity. What what he means by that is you living out your authentic self, your authentic identity is the goal of life. That is where happiness is found. That is where freedom is found. Authentic autonomy. You in charge of you. That is what is behind all the identity talk in our day. Finding your identity, determining your identity, choosing your identity. All of this is just another way of saying you be in charge of you. I'm not submitting to anyone 
or anything. I will be my own king. And yet, have you noticed the misery that has come from this great conquest of individual freedom and expression? Honestly, is anyone happy right now? Is anyone free? Our world is addicted, lonely, anxious, and depressed. Our age of self-rule has yielded a whole lot of self-destruction and self-hatred. Here's the problem. I am a terrible king to submit to. As oppressive and ruinous as any other external king, I don't know about you, but in my life, nothing has proven more ruinous than the tyranny of self-rule. So we find ourselves in a predicament this morning. History has shown us that surrender to external authority typically ends in disaster. What we are learning now in this new cultural moment is that surrender to internal authority is equally disastrous. What are we to do? Wouldn't it be great if there was an authority out there that did authority opposite than what we have come to expect? Would it be wonderful if there was a power that shattered our preconceptions of power? Well, how about a king on a donkey? That seems to flip the paradigm. How about a king who lays down his life for his subjects? How about a king who serves those who serve him? What about an authority that leads to freedom? What about a power leveraged for your flourishing? What about supremacy marked by humility? What about a glory known by its grace? This is what Zechariah promised, and this is what is before us this morning. It is true. When Jesus says, follow me, he is not asking you to make a decision, but to bow in submission. But that invitation is a form of surrender that will set you free. Behind the unexpected imagery of a king on a donkey is a king who loves you. The night after my son's birthday party, I was putting to bed and I said, listen, Charlie, I'm so sorry Spider-Man couldn't come to your party. I know you're probably disappointed. It's the best I could pull off making apologies. And he looks at me and just casually offered one of those lines that a dad will never forget. Every parent has one of those lines from their kids. He said, oh, daddy, don't worry. You're better than Spider-Man. Oh, That's the message of Zechariah's promise. Israel wanted a superhero king, but even better would be a loving king. Jesus on a donkey, humble and gentle, may not be the king that anyone expected or wanted, but we dare not ask for another, amen? Palm Sunday leaves us thanking and praising our king for not being the king we ask for, but being the king we all need. Let us surrender to the king whose majesty is his meekness. Let me pray. And so, King Jesus, we come to the ultimate sign and definition of your authority, the king who lays down his life for his people. Fill us 
with the good news of your humility, meekness, and grace that we might leave here gladly in submission to our King who loves us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the King who does not meet our expectations. You are the King that we need, and we surrender. In your name, King Jesus. Amen.